Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Love the British monarchy. You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Hi. Hi. All right. Uh, Kinsey here with the To Die For Daily podcast. And I am so privileged to be here today with Sally Bedell Smith. Now, I have read so many of your books, I've lost count. I actually have a notebook that I keep next to the books whenever I read them because I'm like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. But we've got a new book coming out. It will be out by the time this podcast is uploaded called George VI and Elizabeth, The Marriage That Saved the Monarchy. What a beautiful book. Thank you so much for writing it and congratulations. Well, thank you very much. It was uh, it was really, I mean, all books are hard to write, but this one was a particular joy because they were such an inspiration. Uh, I love to hear that. And I have some fangirl questions. Do you mind if I get those out of the way first? Not in the least. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you have been doing this for so long I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, you and your husband just love UK culture. You love the history. I want to know what your first Royal assignment was, or did you just give it to yourself because you were so passionate about this? I think my first Royal assignment was really the book about Diana, Princess of Wales. Yeah. Um, I've been, you know, as you mentioned, my husband and I have been going to England for a number of years, and we had a lot of friends over there. And I'd actually met Prince Charles at a polo match, and I'd met Diana uh, incongruously enough on the beach in Martha's Vineyard um, when she was visiting Catherine Graham. Who, and anyway, that's that was where I met her, and she was wearing a bikini, oh. and my then college age son practically, you know. He practically just exploded when he, when he, had to he pick saw his her. job off the sand. <laughs> he, he, he didn't pro- he didn't properly greet her at all. He I had already instructed my younger children to say, How do you do, ma'am? Um, and uh, and I, he didn't have a chance. He just stuck out his hand and said, Hey, how you doing? Oh, and she funny. laughed. She was adorable. But so I had met her, I'd met him, I had a lot of friends who knew them. And um and so when she died, uh, so, um, uh, uh, publisher Random House gave me a call and said, would you write her biography? And I went over to England immediately and I talked to everybody I knew who knew her well, the friends and family. And uh, my previous two books had taken five years each and that one took 18 months. And wow. I, I had to do it at, uh, at warp speed. Um, but it turned out really well. And that was published in 99. And that was the beginning. Um, And then, and then I did the, and then I did the queen, um, which came out for the diamond Jubilee. And then I did the now King Charles the third, which came out in 2017. And then I thought, I want to do the origin story of this modern monarchy. And how do I do that? I go back to two people who had really fascinated me for a long time. Everybody knows George VI from the King's Speech and um, 
you know, his how how he how he dealt with his stuttering and worked with Lionel Logue, and everybody knows um, Queen Elizabeth as the Queen Mum, which is what she was for fifty years after he died, and. People know so little about their 28-year marriage and their their really dramatic courtship and what they did during his 15-year reign, particularly in World War II um, for those six years. And I knew that the only way I could really tell their story with any kind of authenticity and intimacy would be to see their papers. In the, in the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle. I read uh, that you walked up hundreds of stairs and you're a physically fit human being, but you were like <laughs> exhausted by the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I put in the request to the queen and she approved it and it was a real honor. And it was certainly an expression of trust on her part, because she's, she was very sensitive about the portrayal of her mother and father. And I, every day for three months, when I would go to the top of the round tower at Windsor Castle, sort of underlined um, the gravity of what I was doing. Not only did I climb 100 steps, I had to climb all these hills yeah. just to get up to Windsor Castle. So it, it was a commitment each day right. and a happy one. I, you know, I, I just buried myself and read their diaries and letters and was riveted absolutely every minute, every hour, every day. I mean, I do think that that's why royal watchers love you, because they they can sense your passion for it in your writing. One beautiful thing you mentioned is Philip writes to the Queen Mother and is overwhelmed by a really positive, um, a really positive response. And she replies to him, is it isn't it humble making to be the vehicle through which the love of the country is expressed? Yes. Um, I mean, she took her job so seriously and she truly felt honored to be in the position that she was in. Is that what you felt while reading her words? Yes, absolutely. And it was something that she passed on to her daughter, uh, the queen, who in turn passed on to um, Prince Charles. And that whole notion of humble duty and service and not making about it about them but it was about what they represented, that they were the manifestation of the United Kingdom and that their humble duty was to serve their people. And that, that was really important. It was because in the letter that you mentioned, that was when, that was when, uh, that was when Philip and, and um, Elizabeth went to Australia and the crowds were just millions of people. And, and she was basically writing back just to remind him yeah. that it was not about them per se, but what they represented. Interesting, because that, you know, that is kind of the tone Philip takes later in life with Diana, I think. Yes, he tries to impress on her that it is not about Diana. Yeah. You know, it is it is that she that she embodies that duty and and service. And that that's what comes first. What do you think, yeah. is, you think is the biggest misconception when it comes to the Queen Mother? 
Well, I think I think the Brown has sort of underlined the misconception, which is that she was sort of ditzy and, you know, liked to have her martinis and was in, the, in that and she was always sort of floating around the edges. And the and the Queen Elizabeth and even before that, the Duchess of York, uh, who emerges from this book, um, was far more intelligent, far more astute and um, very good reader of character. She was extremely strong. And really, her life with George VI was a very tight part partnership. You know, he, he shared absolutely everything with her. And during World War II, that meant all of the secrets. Mm -hmm. And she was, she was very, very strong. And helped him a lot. And, you know, particularly when he was struggling with his stutter, she was always there with a, you know, with a look or with a gesture. And they just knew they could count on each other. And they went through various trials. I mean, when they, when he was Duke in, of York and she was Duchess of York, they went to Australia and New Zealand. And it was an absolutely punishing tour, uh, but it really sort of gave them incredible confidence and enabled them later on to carry out their duties as king and queen. It was, you know, very much um, very good training for them when they did that. When we when we watch documentaries, um, I mean, I don't think that the crown necessarily necessarily portrays George VI as a, a soft person, but I do feel like history in general kind of uh, paints him as a, as a softer individual. Uh, do you feel like he is a soft or a weak man at all? Not in the least. The real revelation in reading his diaries in the, in the Royal Archives, which began on the first day of the Second World War and went on for seven years, is how uh, strong he was, how intelligent he was, um, how acute his powers of observation were, wow. how opinionated he could be in private. Um, he could, he, and he had very sharp judgments about people, and they were often absolutely right. Ooh. He was very, very tough on Joe Kennedy when he was ambassador to the court of St. James's, and and um, there are a number of passages in the diary that are, you know, that are very harsh judgments of him because he basically what wanted, he basically felt he had no belief that Britain could prevail and that they should just sort of give in to Hitler because Hitler was going to win. And at one point, uh, George VI wrote in his diary, all he cares about is money and keeping his businesses going. Ooh. And so he was, he was tough. Uh, he, he had, I mean, the thing is he had a wonderfully sort of kind demeanor. Yes. And um, at the same time, he also had a very hot and very quick temper. But again, that is one, another area where Elizabeth was very helpful in kind of soothing him. A lot of his temper had to do with his frustration over his difficulty with um, his stutter, which he worked, you know, he worked on that for really his entire life. Yeah. It went away to some extent when he was with people he, he knew well, 
but it was something that you know created anxiety practically every day of his life and it's probably one reason he smoked 40 cigarettes a day which led to his you know his early death at age 56 um I, I, I've had multiple experts on my podcast. I feel like I cannot get a straight answer about this. I mean, they all say that they're right, but I'd love to know where you land on this. The myth, the rumor um, that a, a young Elizabeth was more interested in, in Edward. Where do you fall under that? There's absolutely no truth. I love that. It. Good, good. I'm glad. No, it, I ha- and, and it's in her diaries, her diaries, um, which were... A joy to read. She started her diaries on the 1st of January, 1923, and she knew that her world was going to change. And um, two days later, Bertie, as he was known by everybody in family and friends, proposed to her for the third time. You know, he had been pursuing her for 30 months and she she had turned him down twice. And the first chapter of my book is about the 12 days. This is mostly from her diary, the 12 days between the 3rd of January, 1923 to the 14th of January, 1923, when she when he proposed to her and she finally accepted. And one of the things that really um, upset her in the course of that week was a rumor that was planted in a, see, these things are, you know, they've been going on for a long time. There was a rumor that was planted in a newspaper that, without naming her, but everybody knew who they were talking about, that she was soon to be engaged to um, Edward, the Prince of Wales. And she hardly knew him. I mean, she had met him a few times, but she she was mortified because he was such a playboy and everybody who who was around her who knew her knew that Bertie had been pursuing her for all this time and she was she had you know she when she and Bertie married um they had a good relationship with uh the then prince of wales that they called david and I mean, it was astonishing to me to read also in the diaries. They used to, they were party animals. Oh, I love that. They would go out dancing in, until three and four in the morning. And she would say, you know, fell asleep at 5 a.m. <laughs> um, and, uh, and got up for brekkies and then <laughs> at late. Um, but so, no, I can say unequivocally she was not in the remotely interested in him and it would have been a very bad idea for her to have even given him a second look oh i agree there's a lot in the book about why it's not true i mean i just i love to hear that that young fun um blissful like the the kind of love you only have in youth you know it's so fun to imagine these two um characters that are so regal and sophisticated actually getting to enjoy that i mean it gives you goosebumps you yeah you describe the coronation in great detail yes Um, I, you use words like mystical. You say that they had almost an out-of-body experience because it was so yes. overwhelming. Uh, can you can you explain that to me a little bit? And and will we be able to see any similarities in Charles's? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, there yeah. was so much um, panoply that went with the coronation then. I mean, 
looking at the images of it from those days, you know, it's just, I mean, first of all, there were 8,000 people yeah. in Westminster Abbey who only, it only holds 2,000. And when you walked into the transept on the right-hand side were all the peeresses of the realm and they're, you know, just covered in diamonds and wearing these long uh, crimson robes trimmed in ermine and holding their golden coronets. And on the other side were all the peers and um, they were dressed the same way without the diamonds. And when the king was crowned, you know, they all sort of raised the coronets and put them on their heads. And then when the queen, when Elizabeth was crowned, the peeresses did the same thing. And little Lilibet, the future queen, was sitting there in the royal box next to her Queen Mary. And she later did this adorable journal. And she said, you know, she had this wonderfully poetic description of what happened when these arms sort of raised up to the sky in a haze of wonder. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we're going to see that kind of magisterial touch. Um, the dress is, I think, going to be much simpler. Um, and it, it just, it'll, it will necessarily reflect more of the 21st century. I mean, this coronation was the only prior coronation in, you know, in modern memory that was of a king and a queen. So what we're going to see will, at least in the essential rituals, parallel what George VI and Elizabeth did, um, and now for Charles III and Camilla. But it's only, I think, supposed to last a little more than an hour. Um, George VI and Elizabeth, it was two and a half hours. And, you know, it was a very long day. Yeah. They, they were awakened at, um, you know, at three in the morning three uh, three in the morning by loudspeakers that were being tested and then they couldn't get to sleep because all the bands started practicing and the, and the procession for the coronation started at 8 30 in the morning with one car after another and then carriages and carriages it went on for two hours before they were able to leave Buckingham Palace in the 24 foot gold state coach that dated to the 18th century and there were millions of people who had who showed up for it um so it was you know it, and there's a, the um the procession is going to be much shorter and have far fewer elements in it It'll be different, but I, I loved see, I loved learning about all the things that happened. I mean, there was a moment after he signed his ever. There was a moment after George VI signed his oath when he had a leaky pen. Oh no! And the, and the ink got all over his hands. And if you look at pictures, you can see him wiping his hands. And I couldn't help thinking of Charles yeah. right after his mother died. And he was asked to oh. sign a document and the pen leaked. And he, he got, well, a very different situation. He was under a lot of stress, yeah. but he got very angry and stalked off. That yeah. was nothing that George VI could do. But it was so funny that there was this little parallel of a leaky pen that he was trying to deal with well, that's so um, while he was going through this ceremony. That's convenient because my next question to you was going to ask you the similarities between King Charles and King George. But before I do that, you 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 reminded me of something. You are so heavily versed in not only royalty but politics. Um, yes, uh, I 
I think that we're making something out of nothing by the the story that Biden might not attend the coronation. Do, do you agree? Do you think that it's not a kind of a nothing burger story that Biden? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, for, for Queen Elizabeth's coronation, I think the delegation was headed by George Marshall. Okay. Um, okay. And for obviously, you know, um, George the sixth coronation, there was no president there. Okay. Roosevelt okay. did not come. Uh, so I don't think it's a big deal. Maybe Jill will go, which uh, would be fine. And she might like it. But I, I don't think it's a huge deal. I don't see it as a slap in any way. Okay, perfect. Um, and similarities, you know, we just talked about the pin. You've said temper before. Do you think that uh, temper would maybe be one of the similarities that King uh, George and King Charles had? Yeah, I think it somehow runs in the family. I mean, George V had a terrible temper, as did Edward VII. I mean, maybe it just comes. And Victoria had a pretty, pretty significant temper, too. So, um, but in the case of George VI, and I think in the case of Charles, it, it's very short-lived, and it's usually not directed, at least in the case of George VI. It wasn't really directed at individuals. It was more at, at situations, and he was often very apologetic. But it was it was something that people would notice because he would sort of tremble sometimes before he before he erupted in a temper. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. How does Bertie and Elizabeth's love story compare to Charles and Camilla's? Because I almost wonder if we will be, if history will be more kind to Charles and Camilla, because I mean, they do, I, I do think they're soulmates. It sounds like when I read your, your work that you think that they were really meant to be together. Um, what, how, how do you feel like those two compare? Well, I think the comparison is mostly in how attuned they are to each other. It's true that Elizabeth resisted Bertie for 30 months, but she she never shut the door. And when he finally proposed, as I say, it took 14, 12 days. But once she committed to him, it was as if a switch had been flipped and she was all in. And I think in the case of Camilla, she probably never dreamed that she would ever be a queen. Um, after all that went on in the 1980s and 1990s. But or, or she, Alice I've Keppel. seen Or Alice Keppel. Or Alice Keppel. <laughs> yeah, well, Alice Keppel never got to the altar. <laughs> and that was her great-grandmother. Um, and uh, so I think in each case, uh, both in the case of uh, Queen Elizabeth and in the case of Camilla, I think they are very both very steadying forces for, for very different reasons. And they're also um, total confidants. Mm. I think Charles really shares, my sense is he shares everything with her and relies on her just as George VI did. But I also, I mean, because they're totally different generations, when 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 George VI and Queen Elizabeth went through the coronation, he was 41 and she was 36. And so they were young and beautiful and promising. And we have now, we have much older um, 
much older king and queen. And in a way, I think when I think of parallels, I think of George VI and Elizabeth with William and Kate, in a way, because they were both, they were, George VI and Elizabeth were very family-centric. And in a way, were much more attentive parents than most of the people that they knew in their generation. And um, he even called us, us four. And they were, they were just a very tight bond and they were really involved in each other. And you get that sense with William and Kate. You can see it sort of passing through the generations down to them. And, and obviously it was a different circumstance because Queen Elizabeth II was queen and Prince Philip was not a prince consort. He was, he was Prince Philip. And he became, you know, he was originally a prince of Greece. And then in the 50s, she made him a prince of Britain. But he he had, you know, he he also, you know, was her liege man and her, you know, he, he devoted himself to her. So we do have these models of very devoted partnerships that are very slightly from one generation to the next. And we have George VI and Elizabeth, and then we have Elizabeth II and Philip, and we have Charles and Camilla, and then we have William and Kate. And to varying degrees, they're very, very supportive of each other. Um, Do I have... Do I have time to ask you two more questions? Do you mind? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, you 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 said that Prince Charles has a sign, or at one point had a sign in his dressing room that said "Be patient and endure." Do you feel yes. like he's taken that to heart? Do you see that reflected in his behavior? Yes, I do. I you know that was he put that in his dressing room when he was going through a particularly tough um, patch, a very difficult period with Diana, and everybody was against him. I think he has learned to be more patient as time has gone on. He has certainly waited long enough to be king. And in a way, he's gotten a lot out of his system. And he and in in the endure part, I think that's being tested now by Harry and Meghan. Yeah. And he is learning how to endure whatever issues they bring up whatever things that they say. The other thing I wanted to say about um, this off your point, but Bertie was really the original spare. <gasps> That's and a very good point, yes. They didn't, they didn't have that term, but what really struck me in writing this book was how when he was Duke of York, he found real meaning in being a spare. He did a lot of work on behalf of of uh, laborers and bringing laborers together with business owners. And he would he wanted he visited factories and mines unannounced. He said, "I don't want any of that red carpet." He was really a man of the people, and so all of that that and he was sort of had a very democratic impulse, and all of that helped to make him a better king, but he embraced the idea of being a spare and doing what he could, doing what service he could. 
Well, and I'd also say to I believe you've made the you made the point in King Charles's book that he created a role for himself as the Prince of Wales. Absolutely. To Bertie as um, as the spare. Now, my last question is you you've quoted Prince William before saying that the royal family has a tendency to find merriment when things go wrong. Now, of course, you just mentioned Harry. Do they still have that? Do you think that they are still finding merriment somewhere? Because I think as royal watchers we fear that they're just they're under siege but you know you've talked about in the past how they find merriment they you know pull up their bootstraps and and they find happiness and and they you know they're they're joyful still do you think that that's still going on inside the the palace walls i do i think there are probably some things that happened during this date visit to, to germany where charles and camilla got back in a car or got back in their hotel room and they had a good laugh when something didn't quite go right. I watched Philip and uh, the Queen a few times during royal tours and I saw them, you know, when something again had gone slightly not according to plan and I saw them laughing together in in the car afterwards. And I think that's something that helps keep them sane. And Charles and Camilla have a they do have a sense of humor in common. And she can, as they say in in the English say, she can take the mickey out of him (laughs) and sort of make fun of him and he won't take offense. And she keeps his feet on the ground too. But they do have, you know, they do find joy. They have their retreats. They have Highgrove. They have Burke Hall. They have places where they go. They adore to garden together. Um, And she, she, supports him and all of the enterprises that he created during the time that he was Prince of Wales. So I think there's a lot of room for joy and, and in their grandchildren. I mean, it's too bad that he, that Charles hardly knows um, Harry's two children, but I'm sure they're very close to Kate and Williams and they must give them much joy. Okay, well, I'm not going to I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I know you're going to be very busy for coronation, but when things slow down for you, I would love to just talk to you about Diana because that's my that's my passion. So when things slow yeah. down, I would yeah. love to have another conversation about all I'm, things Diana. I would I would I would be I would I would be glad to do it. Oh, um, thank you so much. Beautiful book. Congratulations on all of your success and I cannot wait to see your coronation coverage. Thank you. Great right. to talk to you, Kenzie. Thank you, Sally. Have a great day. You too.